thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we're still in chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. And again, I'm taking my time because these chapters are foundational. So what I want to do tonight is continue from what we left off last week, doing this kind of survey of Scripture and finding other passages that speak about the same theme in different ways in Scripture. But before I do so, I'd like to correct some of the things I've said. Not that they were wrong, but... I, but often I will emphasize one part of uh, the truth. And it is, it is possible for some to think that that's the only thing that is important. I'd like to, again, um, maybe give a broader background. In talking about daily Mass, there are some of you here, I know, who are going to daily Mass already. I'm not suggesting, from what I said last week, for you to stop. That's not my suggestion. But my suggestion is, don't fall into the sort of a rot uh, behavior where you just go there and go through the motions and you really have no clue and no idea why you're doing what you're doing. And worse, your, your heart is not there. You're just being carried away by the liturgy, but you're not making an effort to focus at every moment, to do the best you can, even though you may be distracted and you may not feel religious. You may feel bored and tired and this and that and the other, but by ignoring all this and reminding yourself that you're here to offer praise and honor and glory, and by trying to put yourself in a frame of mind that reminds you of all the angels and the saints and all of heaven that is around you, so that you can constantly remind yourself you're here as an exile, as in an exile. You're exiled from home. You want to go home. That's what the heart is. It's home. And so, if you were to do that, then it will, it will spill over into your whole day, and then hopefully during your day, you'll remember to do one small sacrifice just for Mass. So when you go there, you're not going empty-handed. You have something to offer. And never mind how you feel about whether you're going to gloat about it or you feel proud about it. Just ignore all this. Just do it. And eventually, Mass will take hold of your entire day. So your day become a, an extension of the liturgy after. And it becomes a preparation for it before. So that you would truly live the way St. Charbel lived. Where he would spend all of his morning preparing for the liturgy, 
celebrating the liturgy at noon and then all of the day in thanksgiving for the liturgy. So that's when you become truly Catholic, when you're liturgy, when you're liturgically based. That's what I was trying to allude to. And so, so many of us are so far away from it because we don't consider the liturgy as the focus or the center of our life. There are so many other centers in our life, the last being the liturgy. That's, I think, the, what I was really to, trying to get, to get at last, last week. Now, what we've done last week, or at least partially so, we've covered some texts. And I'd like to go over some more uh, just so that we can get a sense that what we're hearing in Revelation is not just in Revelation. So let's just turn quickly to Exodus chapter 25. So that's the, um, the second book in, in Scripture right after Genesis. And in that chapter, Moses is up on the mountain and God is about to describe to him the tabernacle, which is going to become the tent of meeting where he is supposed to come and meet him. The tent of meeting will be, the tabernacle will be set outside the camp and God will dwell there. And the key here is that if you look at verse 9 of that chapter, God says to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, according to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it, according to all that I shall show you. So God gave Moses a heavenly vision of what the tabernacle would look like. And so the earthly tabernacle, including the furnitures, including the furniture, even the furniture, was important to God so that he actually showed Moses how that furniture would be made. And that vision in, in Exodus is presumably the vision that John is having now in Revelation. That's the connection between the two. Now, um, if you l- switch very quickly to Hebrew, the letter of the Hebrews, that's the first letter of St. Paul. So it is uh, right after, uh, um, no, not the first, Romans is the first, I'm sorry. Um, Hebrews is way back there. It's the last letter of St. Paul. I'm sorry. Got it wrong. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8. St. Paul is commenting on this passage we just r- read. In, uh, in 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the majesty, this is, again, the name that will not be pronounced, right? That's God the Father. He's seated at the right, right hand of, of God the Father in heaven, a minister in a sanctuary in a true tent. Which tent is he talking about? Well, the tent in the meeting that just we saw in Hebrews. So Moses built the tent, but this is the true tent. You understand? The one that Moses built was a symbol a sacrament, if you will, of the true tent. But now Jesus is in heaven. He is in the true tent. Who is not set up, who is set up not by man, but by the Lord. And then he adds, in verse 4, Now if, if we, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He's basically saying on earth, the Lord could not be a priest because he's not a Levite. 
He's of the tribe of Judah. And we have priests in the temple who are offering sacrifice. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. Right, so you can see St. Paul sees in a temple, the temple was built according to the tabernacle. Both of those are a copy and a shadow of the real tent, the one in heaven. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. So what is the first covenant then? The old covenant, it is the pattern or the example or the model of the real thing. So the first covenant would be like your... your um, dollhouse that you give your daughter to play with and it's a pattern of the real house that she will occupy when she grows up and she's able to be in that house right but by examining so that's when you hear people say what i don't need the old covenant it's really silly because the old covenant is the pattern you examine it you study it you learn about the real pattern that's its purpose so you can't understand one without the other Right? You can't understand one with the other. They're, they're really connected. As a model would be to the, to the real thing. Also, if you turn to, to chapter 9, verse 15 and following in the same letter. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So, the inheritance is only given to children. And so those who are called are called to become children and they will receive that eternal inheritance since a death has occurred which redeems them from the transgression under the first covenant. And then he adds, verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. All right. So he's speaking of the priestly ministry of Christ entering into the, re- the true covenant, which is heaven itself. And it is through the promise of Christ that that which was foreshadowed in the old covenant becomes true in the new. But the same, a similar imagery, similar kind of language that you will find in Revelation, you find here in regards to the heavenly tent. So in Revelation, we see the tent. We see John being taken up and he's describing what he's seeing. And that is the real tent. Because that's where Christ ministers as, as a priest. And now if you turn to um, chapter 12, in the same letter... Therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so great a cloud of witnesses, right? You see, St. Paul has these very mystical usage of the word cloud, and we see it all the time. And this is, of course, a cloud of witnesses, meaning what? What does he mean by cloud of witnesses? 
There are so many of them. There's just so many of them. That when they gather together, they're all dressed in white. They give you this impression of a cloud. But that's what he means, right? But also the notion of the Holy Spirit. Because these people are in the Holy Spirit. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance. The race that is set before us. Echoing the language we found in the first four chapters. Where Christ repeatedly says, the one who perseveres will get the crown of victory. And then he adds, in 12.18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice, whose words made the hearers entreat that no further messages be spoken to them. What is he referring to? He's referring to that first meeting between God and the people of Israel in the desert when God came on the mountains and spoke to the people and all they heard was thunder. So the blaze, you have not come to a blazing, to, that, to what may be touched, a blazing fire. What is that blazing fire? Well, on the one hand, it is the burning bush and also the lightning and all the noises that, that surrounded the mountain and the mountain shook in Exodus when God came down to speak to the people but the voice was so powerful that the reaction of the people was we don't want to hear it anymore right you Moses go talk to him and you talk to us he says to them you have not come to that which is the symbol of the noon that was the old that's the copy the shadow of the real thing what have you come to you have come you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. This is again a description of that scene that St. John is actually seeing with his own eyes. If you look at the elements that are described right now, you see that it is the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels, and festal gathering. Festal is the same root word as festivity. And it is, of course, religious festivity. In particular, the, the, uh, the feast of... Um, um, that would be the, the, fe- the feast of the trumpets or also the feast of Pentecost when people would come holding uh, palm branches and they would gather together, it was a great festive feast. That's what he has in mind. Right? He's not, he doesn't have in mind a party. Right? And then you, you will see in chapter 6 that um, in, of Revelation that after John describes the, the elders, the angels, he'll describe the innumerable host of people who are coming holding palm branches. Right? So that's what um, St. Paul is alluding to here. And then... And he adds innumerable angels, and we, we've seen that already, the myriads and myriads of angels, the assembly of the firstborn. Who are those? Those are all the ones who have been saved by, by, the, by the Lord and who are enrolled in heaven. Meaning what? Meaning having their names written in the book of life. Okay. And to a judge who is God of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood being what? It is the blood of Christ that was sprinkled. And uh, 
And, uh, and so it is, again, the same kind of imagery that we saw in chapter, in chapter 4 and 5. In 4 and 5, the imagery is more vivid, but the principles, the ideas are the same as we found here. Let's turn now back to Luke chapter 10, because we've, we've touched upon Luke chapter 10 last week, but there's another section of it that we have not covered that is just as important. And so in Luke chapter 10, that's when he sent the 70 others to all these cities. And we talked about that at length. But then when they come back, if you follow with me on verse seven, in verse 17 and following of Luke chapter 10, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, so they're coming back because they're happy the demons are actually being pushed out in his name. And they're happy about that. But Jesus says something really striking. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we're going to see that a little bit later in the book of Revelation when there's this battle between Michael and Satan. And Satan is cast down. And you see the language being spoken right here. And why was Satan cast down from heaven? It wasn't just because of what Jesus did. It is because of what the church is doing. Keep reminding yourself of this. The demons are being cast out because of the work of the church. And Satan falls from heaven because of the work of the church. Okay? That's very important. We can't... We, we, because of the pressures that we have here in the United States and elsewhere, we tend to be very Christ-focused. Right? So that Christ basically covers the entire picture. And at one point, God the Father kind of fades out. And then the Holy Spirit fades out. We don't see them. And the church phases out. All we have is just Jesus. Well, that's kind of a little bit of a heresy, isn't it? Our faith is not in Christ only. Our faith is Trinitarian. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then in all of the creed. And the creed includes the church. So we have to adjust our focus and understand how Christ wills salvation to take place. We're doing this so that we can give glory to Christ. We're not doing it because... We want to fit our own desires or wish. We just want to kind of enter into the mind of Christ and say, see how He wants salvation fulfilled. Because the closer we can get to that, the better our prayer life will be. Because we'll know how to pray. That's what we're doing, what we're doing here. And that's, what the book of, that's why the book of Revelation is so precious for us Catholics, because it's such a Catholic book. And then he adds, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He didn't say rejoice that your name, that your names will be written in heaven. He didn't say that. Notice, it's present tense. Are written in heaven. Now, as I, as I speak to you, your names are written in heaven. Right? And perhaps this is where we differ from the Calvinist. Because to the Calvinist, God has no eraser. God has no eraser. When he writes in a book, he can't erase. It's done. But to Catholics, God has an eraser. Their names are written in heaven. But it is entirely possible for someone whose name is written in heaven now to have his name blotted out 
of the book of life later. Do you understand? And we should not think of it a very, we should not think this is a strange if we understand a family. Your son is your son, and you love him, your daughter is your daughter, and you love her. But fundamentally, it is conditional. There comes a point where your son and your daughter may do something or behave in such a way that you can kick them out. And you can even break all relationship with them. But it is also possible for them to mend their ways, to be sorry and come back, and you will take them back in. You have an eraser. Right? That is how heaven is modeled. That's why I say to you that this vision that we see in the book of Revelation is not about the end times or about how heaven is going to be finally or how heaven is going to be at the end of the day. It's about today how we and them in heaven are all together in the celebration of the liturgy, praising the Lord. And through this economy of salvation, He rules the world. All right? Now, he, he, he added something very interesting here. Those guys are coming back and they're basically pumped up. Right? They went there, they cured, they cured the sick, they took care of the, even the demons went away. So there's, a, you know, the bunch of guys coming back, being really pumped up and feeling a little bit like, you know, Arnold would after a good workout. Right? They're really happy. So what does Jesus say about that? In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Revealed them to babes. So, the the key here is, it isn't about, you see, it's about revelation. You see the key word here? Again, revealed them. Made them... uh, present in such a way that they can be grasped and understood. It is God who reveals to us. It isn't us who, you know, climb up heaven, building a new tower, a Babel. It doesn't work this way. And that's a key for proper interpretation of Scripture. We have to roll up our sleeves and work. We have to read and study and sweat and think and try to make sense of it. But at the end of the day, it is God who reveals it is His gracious will that He reveals it to babes. What is, what is that meant? What is meant by that is that He will reveal it only to those who are not pumped up and full of themselves. That's why you can't be a proper theologian if you don't have a proper prayer for life. There's no way. Yeah, you can be a great scholar. You can know Scripture really well and you can cite it and you can understand the Aramaic and the Greek and the Latin and we should, we should strive to do that. This is very good. Very, very good. Don't get me wrong. Knowledge is a very good thing. But you know what? The devil does all that. He knows Scripture back and forth. He can quote Scripture. He knows it in Latin and in Greek and in Hebrew. And it does him no good. All right. We've already covered Ephesians 3, where we, we, we saw St. Paul speak of the church, and where he declares that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God will be revealed 
to the principalities and powers, meaning the angels, and how the church teaches the angels, not just humans. But if we now turn to 1 Timothy 2.14, the first letter of uh, Paul to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Bulwark or foundation. So what is the pillar and foundation of the truth? It's the church. 1 Timothy 2, the first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 14 and following. Oh, sorry, yeah, I didn't see the 3. 2 is uh, short. 3, chapter 3, verse 14. I'm not a Protestant, so I don't know those numbers by heart, okay? I'm sorry. Chapter 3, verse 14. Correct myself. 1 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 14. Here we go. So, what is the foundation pillar of the truth? It's the church, the household of God. Okay? And the interesting thing on a very practical level, of all the churches out there, the only one that makes that claim, that boldly makes the claim to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, is the Catholic Church. No other churches make that claim. It is part of our faith in the church that the church holds and keeps the deposit of the faith. So the church sees herself as a keeper and a protector of the deposit of faith, of all that was revealed. And it is her duty to expand on it and to make it applicable to all ages. No other church makes that claim. Think about that. So again, when people tell you all I need is Christ, no. Because Christ is saying, I'm not the one that... You need more than me. It's kind of funny to say it this way. But you need to understand it in the context of a family. In the context of the family, when a dad is saying to the kids, go listen to your mother, it's not that he cannot talk to them directly. He can. You know, he's got a four-year-old coming to him saying, can I have a lollipop? He says, go ask your mom. Is it he can't deal with a lollipop himself? Well, maybe some dads can't. But generally speaking, a dad is supposed to be able to deal with a lollipop. So why does he say, go ask your mom? Well, one reason might be because he's, he's shooing the kid away because he's watching him uh, in a football game or something. That is possible. But again, that's not a proper function of a father. The reason why he's saying, go ask your mom, because he's honoring her. He wants his children to honor her. You go talk to any good parents, and they will tell you, and I've seen that across the board, that the number one, the one unspeakable crime that the children can make in the house is to show disrespect their mother. I know of many fathers, and I'm one of them, where if the children show disrespect to their mother, it's that moment in time when they should be saying, O mountain fall upon us, and O rock hide us. 
Because the wrath is sure to come. Why? A father can't put up with the fact that his children are showing him disrespect, but he can't put up with the fact that he's showing his mother disrespect. It's built in us. It's built in. Why? Because that's how it is with Christ and his church. He was on the cross. Get it? He died for her. That's why. To enter into the mind of Christ, you have to enter into the church. There's no other way around it. And if you hear me insisting so much on this, it is again because we live in a time and day where that truth is being forgotten. That truth is being forgotten. Were we to live in a time and day where all that people could think of is the glory of the church and even the material glory of the church and we had centuries where this had happened, then I'd be speaking the other way around. Right? So I'm not, I'm not making the love and devotion and belonging of the... I'm not making the church an absolute truth. She isn't. She's a relative truth. The only absolute truth is Christ and God. That's the only absolute truth. But that relative truth is the one he died for. And we tend to ignore her. And I will tell you something more. I'm not going to explain it, but think about it. There is a direct correlation, a direct correlation with the way we Catholics treat the church and the way men treat women at large. There's a direct correlation between the way we treat the church and the way of unwed women with children out there. Don't think it doesn't have an impact. The impact is foundational to our society. And hopefully as we progress to the book of Revelation, you will start to see that. That the spiritual realities dictate the way the world goes. It isn't just about sociology and psychology. Those are important elements, but the spirituality dictates everything. Very good. So those are some of the passages, and there, there are more. We can go to Matthew, and we can go to Luke and to John, the Gospel of John, and see that over and over again, repeated. All I wanted to do right now is to give you a, to, to widen your perspective that what you see in this book of Revelation is not just in the book of Revelation. It isn't this unique thing that shows up there and nowhere else. All right? So now why don't we turn back to the... To Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, I'm reading chapter 4, And lo, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there appeared like Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. So uh, John describes God the Father in terms of precious stones, Jasper and Cornelian. The reason why he does that is because on the breastplate of the high priest, there were 12 precious stones who represented the zodiac, meaning the cosmos, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And the reason why it was done this way is because the role of a precious stone is to represent for us the importance of the priestly function. The importance of the liturgy. The role of precious stones is to show us, is to give us an idea, a hint about the beauty and the majesty of the stones. Why? Because they reflect 
God's glory. So God's glory reflected in the world in a liturgical way. And God the Father is described in terms of precious stones to highlight the priesthood. To highlight the fact that all priesthood, all fatherhood comes from Him. And at the same time, to tell us that He is the unapproachable light. He cannot be described in human terms. What is the rainbow doing behind the throne? And by the way, before I continue, that's why, that's why we should have the chalice adorned with precious stones. That's why we should have the church adorned with precious stones. And that's why we should have women adorned with precious stones. Why? Because it gives us the notion that these women are consecrated to the Lord. That's the role of precious stones. But as usual, we, you know, we have, we've gotten things upside down. We don't understand anymore the role of precious stones and their purpose, and we just forget all about it. And so it becomes all about vanity. You know, there's some women who wear precious stones like it, they look like a Christmas tree. <laughs> it's bewildering. I don't get it. Because they don't understand the fun. The spiritual meaning of those precious stones. Why did God create them in the first place? They're signposts to heaven. And they're signposts to the, to the liturgy. Why, why, why is there a rainbow behind the throne? What is the rainbow symbol of? The promise? Which promise? That's it. That would not rain again? I hope not. Would be in big trouble if it didn't rain again. <laughs> but I hear you. You meant that God will not wipe out all living being through flood. That's what the rainbow. Now, why did God choose a rainbow? Ever thought about this? Yes, but the, but see, that's the answer is because the sun is made of seven colors, and you're right. It is made of at least we see seven. It's actually an infinite. Um, Hugh, but 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 even if if it was so, right? Would would you be satisfied with that answer? Why? You see, that's very important. I'm, I really I'm, I'm really happy you brought up that point. Faith builds on reason. Faith should never require us to turn off reason. We can't believe in something because it is so. Oh well. That is the meaning. That is the grading. That is an attack against the image of God in us. The fact that we have reason makes us creatures in the image of God. So whatever answer we come up with, it must be reasonably satisfying. Okay? Alright. Here's why. The word rainbow gives you the clue. What's it made of? Rain. And a bow. What do, you, what do you use a bow for? War. So what did God do? He stopped the rain and he hung his bow. So when you see it, you know that God has hung his bow. Get it? No more war. Pardon? In English, you're right, in English, there's a rainbow, but actually the word bow itself 
is part of the original word. Right? It's a bow. Okay? And the shape of it as well. It's a very good point that you brought up. But the shape of it also, right? God basically is saying, peace. Right? So the fact that it is in the background reminds us of that covenant that God made where He said, I will extend mercy to the world. But at the same time, it brings about the notion of judgment. So you see the scene is, covenant, is covenantal right there. It's liturgical and it's covenantal, just by looking at the throne. Now, we spoke last time about, um, about the four creatures, which are essentially angelic beings who have taken on these shapes to make us understand some of their abilities and function. So the four the four, uh, the four uh, primary constellations of the Zodiac, because back then they did not have Scorpio, they had an eagle instead of Scorpio. Scorpio being attached to the serpent, they didn't call it a Scorpio, they called it an eagle. So you have the four main constellations summarizing the entire universe and the angels who are actually in charge of making this universe run. So... All of them are there, and indirectly, it's a sense that the whole cosmos is around the throne of God, and the whole cosmos gives glory to God. And then we have the 24 elders who are dressed in white and with crowns. Those are priest kings, and they are offering uh, their glory and honor and praise to the Lord. And we talked about the bodily movement of the elders where they, they sit and they prostrate themselves and they stand. And that's why we do the same in church, because we are really imaging what is going on in heaven. And then in chapter 5, And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on a throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming the loud voice. We said last time the reason why he cried about the fact that he couldn't find anyone to open the seal was because he realized the tragedy of our human condition, of our fallen human condition where none of us could actually go and open the seal. Of that scroll. Now, what is that scroll? There's been quite a bit of ink written on that scroll. My own hunch, and it is supported by a number of um, um, scholars who've studied this, is that this is the scroll that God has commanded Daniel to seal. If you remember from the study we did on Daniel, if you don't, talk to Johnny again. We have a whole series done on Daniel. We went in great detail on Daniel, so I don't want to spend much time covering this here. But in summary, Gabriel was said to Daniel, and he explained to him the sequence of events of what is to happen, all the way from the time of them being in exile in Babylon around the year 587, all uh, BC, all the way through to the coming of Christ and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And then he was told to seal up that scroll. Meaning what? The time has not yet come for it to be fulfilled or for it to be revealed. And so Daniel, the prophet, sealed that up. The, the, the other reason why I think this is so is because of the close correspondence between what we see here and in Daniel chapter 7. So let's turn quickly to Daniel chapter 7, and then we'll come back and see all the, all the uh, parallelism between the two texts. In the first year 
of Belshazzar, I'm reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. The king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of, of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So, the, this part of the vision, the first part is the, the vision about the four empires who are going to succeed each other. The, Babel, the, the, um, the um, uh, Assyrian, um, um, Syro, um, the Medo-Persian, the Babylonian, and then, no, no, wait a minute. There are four of those, Babylonian, um, yeah, Medo-Persian, Babylonian, Greek, and Roman. The four empires succeeding each other, each coming out of the sea in the form of a great beast. The same imagery is going to reappear in Revelation later about the beast coming from the sea. Right? So we understand it is a kingdom coming. Right? It's a political power. Those what, this is what those beasts from the sea are. They're political powers. Physically, they're political powers. Now spiritually, of course, they're pushed by demonic forces. So he describes all this, and then he says, in verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Same imagery that we saw about Jesus in the first chapter, in the first four chapters. Raymond white as snow, and his hair was white as wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The same kind of numbers that St. John uses about describing the angels. And the court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. And then a little bit later he says, in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And here we have the echo of the new song that is sung by the elders, about the dominion of Christ, how he made a kingdom of priests, and his, who, who, who are to reign on earth. We saw that in chapter 4 and 5 last time. And then, if you look at the correspondence between these two, you will see that verse 7-9 in Daniel, as I look, thrones were placed, match verse 4-2 in the book of Revelation. A throne was, he sees his throne. And one that was ancient of days took his seat in 7-9, and in, uh, in 4.2, we have one sitting on the throne. In 7.9, his raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. In 4, the elders in white garment and golden crowns. His throne was fiery flames. And in 4.5, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. It wheels were burning fire, and then we have the four living creatures with the wheels. A stream of fire issued and came forth from be- forth before him, and then in four five from the throne issues flashes of lightning. We have the beast coming from the sea. We have a sea of crystal. Ten thousand and ten times ten thousand stood before him. We have the um, myriads and myriads of angels. We'll see a little bit later. 
Then we have the, the court set in judgment in 7.10. The books before the throne, we have the sealed scroll in 5.1. The books are opened, the scroll is opened. A divine messianic figure approaching God's throne to receive authority, reign forever over the kingdom, we have the same thing. The scroll is held, only one who can open the, the scroll to whom all power and dominion is given approaches, and he's the one to open that scroll. So the books are open in Daniel for judgment. The scroll is going to be open for judgment. The kingdom's scope, all peoples, nations, and tongues. That's in 714, in Revelation 5.9, the same thing. All peoples, nations, and tongues. In 715, the seer's emotional distress on account of the vision. He's looking and he's distressed by what he sees. And St. John is distressed because no one can open the book. So even the same emotional sense cover both of them. In 716, which I may not have read to you, but let's just go back quickly. 716. So in 715, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. And we saw St. John, who was crying because no one could open that scroll. And in 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. And in, in St. John asks, who can open the scroll? And one of the elders come to him and explain to him. So you can see it almost following blow by blow. The entire vision follows the same structure. In 718, 22 and 27, so 718, we read that, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. And in Revelation 5, 5, we have the same thing. The saints are going to reign on earth. The saints given divine authority to reign over a kingdom, I said in 18, 22, and 27. And then concluding mention of God's eternal reign is, is in 7, 27. And then in Revelation 5, 13, and 14, we have the same thing. So the entire structure of Daniel is the one that is mimicked by those two chapters, 4 and 5, where John now is in heaven. The difference now is that in the case of Daniel, it was a promise given to Daniel about things that will be fulfilled. In the case of John, it is the fulfillment of that promise. Now the scroll is written within and without. It is definitely an allusion to the tablets of the commandments that were written on both sides. Right. So again, it's covenantal in nature. It has seven seals. At the time... Some scholars believe that when, when, when a man wrote a, a testament to pass it on to his children, he would seal it with seven seals. This is marginal as far as we're concerned. Seven is the number of the covenant. It is a covenantal seal. It requires someone who can institute that covenant to be able to open that scroll. And then the only one who can is Christ. So to me, that scroll is effectively... The promise made to Daniel, rolled up and sealed during his time about the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of that promise. And now, and now John sees that. Now a very important element of that fulfillment is what? It is the passing away of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant cannot pass away so long the temple is standing. So long as sacrifice in the Jerusalem temple are being offered, the Old Covenant is in effect. 
So as part of the passing away of the old covenant, that temple must pass away. And there were really two ways in which it could have passed away. The peaceful way, where the temple would have been, would have become what it was always meant to be, a house of God, a church. Or the hard way, it would be destroyed. And we will see now that that particular event of opening the scroll is specific to the time of John. In that it relates to the events that will surround two things. The breakup and destruction of the, of the temple in Jerusalem on the one hand. And the, the fact that the church is going to subdue the Roman Empire. So both of them, both of them who are set against the church, are going to be subdued by the church because God reigns. And that's what happened effectively. If you think about it, it's exactly what happened. The temple was destroyed, and then the church took residence where? In Rome. What does that mean? If you have an empire, and you have someone, who, who you have a conqueror who comes, and sets his capital in the old capital, what did he do? He conquered. Do you understand? That is why it is the Roman church. Because Christ conquered that empire. Why is that important to us? Because back then, the Roman empire was the greatest empire of them all. None could compare to the power and might and strength of Rome. None. And Christ conquered that empire. What does that suggest? Every other empire, bar none, will be conquered the same way. Without exception. Now, as far as timing and why it doesn't happen in our time, and this and that, the book of Kings, and the book of Samuel, and the book of Chronicles are a perfect study case. Read those books. And then think about our own time and you'll understand exactly why God takes His time to make things happen. But they will happen. Of that there is no doubt. So historically, if, I, if we go back now to the times that St. John is living in, some of what he's talking about is going to be fulfilled very quickly by the destruction of the temple. And some of what he's talking about is going to take longer. To about the year 300 where the empire fell and became Catholic. To us, it's a little point, it's a point of detail to think about, well, okay, yeah, so what? The Roman Empire fell, became Catholic. And then we tend to explain it away with a lot of uh, very nifty and smart political meandering. Oh, well, that because Alexander was a politician and he wanted to do this and the other, and he had his own. Yeah, maybe. Maybe Alexander was a very slick politician and all he was was a. Maybe. I don't think so. But it should not take away from the awesome reality that the empire, the Roman Empire, fell and decided to worship a Jewish carpenter. I mean, we, we, we can't, to us, it's, yeah, so what? Just a piece of history. But if you were living back then, in the year 100, 
Or if you saw Jesus walking and you said, you see this man? He's going to replace Zeus. Yeah. He's going to replace Zeus. What do you think people would have thought of you? Okay. Okay. How is that different from what I'm saying to you right now? You see that man? There's going to be a lot of replacement that's going to still happen in this world. A lot of guys are going to be fired. Don't despair because you only see what you see today. You need to study history. You must study the history of the church. Poland as a country disappeared from the map twice in its history. In fact, not only disappeared, it got moved by one-third of its size. They moved all of Poland twice. Ireland, in Ireland for 200 years, England would not permit Catholics to teach their children, to send Catholic children to school. For 200 years, Ireland went from 10 million to 3. They lost 7 million people to immigration. Under Stalin, Stalin created a, an artificial famine in Ukraine. Upward of 10 million Ukrainians died under his rule. During the First World War, the Ottoman Empire imposed the same artificial um, famine in Lebanon. Half of the Maronites died of hunger. The head of the Maronite, uh, uh, the head of the Maronite monks, went to France and sold all the churches and all the property that the church owned. He sold all of them to the French government and used the money to sneak food into the mountain. No one knows about him. No one talks to you about him. And about all the others, I know him because I read about his life, but there are so many others across the whole church that did the same. And after the First World War, the French president said that the French government refused to honor, to, to, to take actually possession of the properties because he said, Clemenceau was his name, and he said, the French government will not be less generous than 100 monks. I remember my great-grandmother telling me about what happened during that time. It was horrible. We tend to be very selfish in our pain and suffering because we only see what we know and love. Because we tend to be tribal first and then Catholic. Instead, the other way around. In Japan, you know how many people we just celebrated in the Latin rite? Saint... Um, and what happened to him? How did he, did he die? He was crucified. During the, Roman, the, the Ottoman Empire in Lebanon, three of our patriarchs were, two of them were uh, burned live. The third one was impaled. 
Study the history of the church and stop being wimps. Sitting here as if doom is going to overtake us. That is not the way of Catholics. Have faith and trust in the Lord because He reigns. That's what this book is all about. So you can substitute now this business of the scroll, which was historically set in a context that made sense sense to John and all those who lived with him. There were very little churches. They had the temple on one side after them, and they were powerful, and they had the Roman Empire, the whole Roman Empire after them, and boy were they powerful. What comes around goes around. Nothing changes. But Christ rules forever. you got to understand this. He rules forever. Now I spoke to you about all of this, but I will add this. We as Catholics tend to exonerate ourselves very easily from our own sins. From our own sins. We think that we are not, we don't, we don't deserve to be punished. Nobody deserves to be punished. We think the suffering and the pain and all the difficulties we're going through are, are but just injustice. Just, we just look at it as injustice. We don't see our own sins. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done among Catholics. And that's the purpose of those four, 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 four chapters we saw. We exonerate ourselves so easily. So, let's go back to the scroll. So we saw here in chapter, in chapter 5 that the elders sang a new song. We talked about that last time. And then we saw the, num- the angels numbering myriads of myriads, meaning millions of millions. And it doesn't mean millions of millions, one million times one million. It means lots. Way too many. Can't count them. All right, that's all it means. All right? And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea. And all that is saying, To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You can hear almost, as I said last time, the antiphonal chant that is closing that section of prayer and praise and glory to God. Now God is going to respond. Notice in all of this prayer, there isn't one slight doubt There isn't an attitude of people who are defeated. There's an attitude of victory, of strength, of hope, of power. There's an attitude of a very, very powerful prayer. That happens only when we cleanse our hearts. Now God responds. Now I saw that I saw when the lamp opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say as with a voice of thunder come and I saw and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer so how many horses are there I think everybody knows that four the four horses of the apocalypse ooh okay think now Four. What does that imply? The whole world. What is that then? It's a judgment on the whole world. No one escapes Christ. 
right? What is, the, what is the meaning of a horse? Again, remember those tapes, the CDs we've done on the symbols and the meaning of all the animals? You can go back to those. See, I think now you start to understand why I did it this way, because otherwise I'd be stopping right now and going through all the symbolism of a horse and what it means and the bow, what it mean, a bow, what it means, and, and you'd be dizzy before we're done because we'd be flipping back and forth across all the scripture all the time. So go back and look at those CDs and remind yourself of horse. But definitely, horses are used where? War. So what is the, isn't that interesting? What is the effect of that praise that was given to God? What is the response from God in this context? Preparation for judgment, including war. What was he given? What was that first writer given? A bow. Let me ask this question. See, we, oftentimes we don't stop on those things. I told you the most difficult parts are always the simple one. Why a bow? And, more importantly, where did he get it? See, always try, that's why you need to read the text multiple times to form the image in your head so that you can start correlating elements. Nothing is said there by coincidentally. What was behind the throne? Huh. What is God doing then? He just unstrung his bow. That bow that was hung behind him He just unstrung him now. He took it out and gave it. Get it? God is now about to apply covenantal curses. You understand? So the curses of the covenant are being triggered. How are they being triggered? By the prayers of the faithful. Blessings and curses are triggered, are applied by God in response to the prayer of of the church. So he takes out that bow. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, blessings and curses, again, I'll remind you the whole series on covenant. It's foundational. You need to listen to it. So he took that bow and gave it to him. What else, did he, what else was he given, this writer? A crown. He's given a crown. Isn't that interesting? How do you usually get a medal in the military? When do you get a medal? Pardon? Right. Before or after? Huh. Why after, not before? Because you're not sure, right? We don't have certainty of victory. Isn't that funny? He gets it before. What does that suggest? Absolute certainty. It isn't about you go prove yourself. No, no, no. It's already done. There's no more proving needed. The Lamb has done it all. As an extension of his power, you are to rule. Here's your rule. You go as a king. Conquering and to conquer. Conquering and to conquer. Now, here's where we make the mistake. We make the same mistake as the disciples did, as all those who lived during Jesus' time, when when we hear this. We immediately translate this in a number of tanks, and, you know, planes, and... Okay, why? Why? 
because we automatically, because of our, of our defect liturgically, we're essentially liturgically um, lacking. All right? We, what do we do? We divorce the king from the priest. It's a kingdom of priesthood. Right? Kingdom of priesthood. Keep reminding yourself of this. It's very easy to fall into, oh, okay, I see. So God is going to raise a huge army and, you know, it's going to have all these tanks. And No, 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 you got it wrong. That's what's so unsettling for us because we're not used to the power of the Mass and the power of the priest. We don't understand that. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So, what, 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 I want, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to ask you to read this chapter, which is now chapter 6, and also read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Read those three chapters, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and chapter 6, and map the horses to the curses. You will see how there is a complete correlation between the two. And then next week, when we come back, we'll cover them in detail. Eight. Okay? We'll cover those in detail. So before we close, I'd like to know if there are any questions. Yes. No, white is simply representative of, um, yeah, the rider on the horse, some will say it's Christ himself. I don't think we have to push the imagery and say it is Christ himself. It could be an angel representing him because, after all, angels are also uh, conformed to Christ. So it is simply someone who is sent, an angel sent in the name of God to effectively apply his judgment on earth. Yes. The four horses is simply the horses sent that cover the, the entire world. No one escapes because of number four. That's the, all there is to it. Yes. The, yeah, the question is about correlation between precious stones and a woman wearing precious stones. The purpose of a precious stone in Scripture, and St. Paul uses this many, many times, St. Peter also uses it, is to represent the beauty, the purity of all those who are conformed to God, who are effectively children of God in heaven. Because the nice thing about a precious stone is that it's beautiful, and it is pure, and it is very different from us. And likewise, when we die and raise in heaven, our nature will be transformed into something very different than what it is now, and it will be beautiful, it will be pure. And that's why on the breastplate of the high priest, you had 12 precious stones that represented the whole of the universe, that will be conformed to God in the new creation, and also the 12 tribes of Israel, which were supposed to be consecrated to God, and therefore in His priestly ministry. And hence the precious stone now becomes a symbol of the, of the, uh, priest, of the, of the priesthood, and by extension, the symbol of all those who are, who are consecrated to God. So now when a woman wears a precious stone on her, what the, the statement that she should be making is, this stone is there to remind me and remind you, first to remind you, looking at me, that I am precious 
in the eyes of God, and I am heaven-bound. And it is there to remind me of that reality as well. Yes. Is it okay? Yes, it is okay to trade with stones. Absolutely. Yes, it's fine. I mean, let's not go into excessive uh, profit and all that, but is it, is, it, is it okay to sell a stone for? Yeah, why? Because it's hard to find those things, so you should be paid a wage to get those. Yes. There is no, other than, again, the rainbow as an emerald represent everything around God the Father is described in terms of precious stones. All of it. Right? So that's, that's effectively the, 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 the significance that we can derive from this. Now, it's certainly not complete. There may be other, some, you know, other significance behind what I, I said. I'm sure of it. There is. But for now, that's a sort of a um, co- coherent part that we can latch on. Yes. What I'm impl- the question is, am I implying that all ca- ca- countries will be converted and become Catholic? I am implying what God commanded his disciples to do at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Right? Go forth and make disciples of all nations. Not make disciples in every nation. This is not a command about people. This is a command about nations. All nations will be discipled. All right. Now, as it is with people, so it is with nations. They they swear allegiance. They be they enter into covenant with God. They stay with it. They're blessed. They don't. They're cursed. Right? But everyone will bow before the Lord. No exception. Yes. Um, the the question is a reference between. Uh, Satan being thrown down from heaven by St. Michael as a response to the work of the church. Yes, we'll get to it later when we will get to that part where we see the battle between St. Michael and, and the devil. That's going to happen later in the Revelation. We'll, we'll talk more about it because remember, heaven is an overloaded term. It means different things. Right? So we'll get to that when we get to that section of the war between Michael and, and, the, and, uh, and uh, Satan. Yes? Yes. At the end of times, when the final judgment comes, it will be bad on earth. Uh, yes, I think it is. It is. Uh, it is. Uh, I think it's a misconception which comes to us from the Protestant pessimism to suppose that at the end of the times, we're ba- ba- basically at the brink of chaos and everything is going to just is, is going south and destruction is going to hit everybody. And then no, because himself, he himself says, right. When, uh, when, a si- when, a, when a son of man comes, there will be marrying and being married, and there will be give- people will be living their lives just as we are today. And he said, no one knows the hour, nor the time. So, and because of the fact that he founded his church on earth, graces will flow on the whole earth until the end of time. So this, this kind of a black and dark pessimism that comes to us, as I said, from this Protestant approach that the world is just, Sinking in, why should we even try to save a sinking ship? But it's not at all the perspective of the Catholic Church. Yes. The question is, well, he gave the bow now. Does this mean he's going to flood the world? Well, no, he won't. The purpose behind it is that God has unstrung his bow. He's going into war. Right? But again, we, don't, we, we, we should not allow ourselves to understand it militarily, purely militarily, because then we go back into the earthly kingdom that... You know, we're, we're used to, to, to understand. We have to understand in a priestly fashion. It's through the liturgy that all this is going to happen. Okay? Let's stand and finish with a word of prayer.
We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.